0: that we just do not forget. And one of the things so far that I have yet to forget and delete from my memory banks is from every day, from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade, I remember walking into the school, whether in elementary school or middle school or high school, I walked into either my first period classroom or my homeroom, just depending on the situation of that year and that school, I would hear the announcements come on. And out of that intercom, the principal would deliver some announcements but then after the announcements he would ask or she would ask us all to stand and say and recite the pledge of allegiance to the United States of America and then they would always say these words and now let us have a moment of silence For the longest time, I'm not going to lie to you today, I had no clue why we had a moment of silence. It absolutely made no sense to me that we would pause and do nothing for 30 seconds or however long that moment of silence was when I was in the Franklin County school system. It made no sense to me until one day I realized that years ago, before my lifetime, before I came into this world, that moment of silence used to be called a moment of prayer. I find it interesting that this world has grown so cold to God that now they stand in silence before God. We've grown so cold to the concept of prayer that instead of praying to God, we're just silent before Mother Nature. Today, as we come to Revelation chapter 8, I want to share a statement with you that I want to label as my sermon title. God is at work in the moment of silence. God is at work in the moment silence. I'm going to say something right now that's going to make absolutely no sense to your brain, and it's going to make absolutely every sense to your brain. God is speaking when God is not speaking. Did you catch that? God is speaking when God is not speaking. And today we see in this unique chapter of the Bible that silence has come to heaven. But before we dive into these few verses here, I want to bring us up to date about all that's going on in heaven. Back in Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 5, we we see a scene in glory where the Bible says that these lightnings and these thunderings and these voices are coming directly from the throne of God. And now in chapter 8, we see that they are going to be thrown down to earth. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, we hear the four beasts saying these words, who never rest day and night, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. In verse 11, we see the elders fall down, the 24 of them in chapter 4, and they say, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Remember, in chapter 4, God, the Father, is being praised as the Lord of creation. But in chapter 5, we see God, the Son, is being praised as the Lamb of redemption. And we see in chapter number 5 that the Bible tells us in verses 5, and five, 6, and 7 that the elder is speaking to the earthly elder, and they're speaking to him, to John, and saying, Do not cry any longer. Do not weep. The Lion of the Tribe of Judah and the Root of David has prevailed to open the book, and He is worthy to loose the seven seals, and we see that they begin begin to move forward in their conversation and. And then in chapter number five, verse number nine, there, there's a song that is sung by the four beasts and the 24 elders before the Lamb. They fall down with harps and golden vials of odors, which represent the prayers of the saints. And they are singing this song to God. I often wonder what the melody was like. Maybe we'll get to hear them sing this in glory. It says, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And then in verse number 12, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of ones, these angels surrounding the throne and these beasts and these elders, John hears them saying with a loud voice, chanting, if you will, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And then again in verse 13. He hears them saying, Blessing, honor, glory, power, be to the one who sits in the throne, to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts say, Amen. In chapter 6, we hear six angels say, Come and see. And then in chapter 7, of course, is an interlude period. God is giving us a break of these six seals. Perhaps letting John recuperate from the mental fatigue that he's just witnessing. God unleash all these seals. And then in chapter 7, excuse me, 8, we see heaven, in a sense, is put on Paul's. Can you imagine all of heaven and the worship that is being delivered to God, all the things that are being praised? In fact, even in chapter seven, we see these voices that are, being, that are saying the angel comes and says, hurt not the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And then again in chapter 7 and verse 10, the Bible says that, that these ones who are called a great multitude are crying out or chanting with a loud voice, salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And then we see one final saying from the th- th- verse 13 about these elders, speaking about who are these arrayed in white clothes. We see all these things are taking place, and and in verse number one of chapter eight, God, in a sense, takes the remote control and presses pause on all the worship in heaven. God is at work in the moment of silence. My friends, today I just want to share with you that God is speaking in his utterances and even in his silences. And today, as we come to this passage, yes, we believe it's a future event that's taking place, but I want you to understand this, that yes, we need to understand God's word with information, but more than just compile more information into our minds about God's word and about these future things, we've got to take this passage and apply it directly to our lives right now. And so understand this, that God is at work in the moments of silences of your life and my life and not just the ones in heaven in the future. Now, that being said, I want to kind of ask three questions today and want to answer it with three different statements from these verses. In verses one and two, I want to ask this question, how is God at work in heaven? And then in verses three and four, I want to ask this question, how is God at work in our lives today? And then in verse number five, how is God at work in this world on the earth? Or how does the world see God at work? How do believers see God at work? And how do these heavenly beings see God at work? Let's look at verses 1 and 2. But remember, before we do that, God is at work in the moment of silence. And in verses 1 and 2, here's the first thought i want to share with you. How do we see God at work in heaven? Or how do these heavenly beings see God at work? Well, first of all, check it out now. Verses 1 and 2. When heaven is silent, God is speaking. When heaven is silent, God is speaking. Verse number one, it says, and when he, this is a reference back to chapter six, when we see that Jesus Christ is the one worthy to take the title deed of the earth and to redeem it back into his own hand and take dominion over the world. We see this is him being referenced. He is the one who's worthy to open and to loose this seal. And this is the seventh seal. We can call this seal the the seal of silence. And then it says, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Hmm. You want to play a game? Let's play a game. You didn't know you're going to come to worship today and play a game, but you are. I'm going to get my timer out of my, my phone, and I want to I play the quiet game, okay? You ever play that game? Often you play this game with a, a bunch of children so that you can get them to be quiet, for, for a little while, but, but I, want, I want you to be quiet for a little while, all right? And me too. So let's try this for five seconds. You ready? You think you can do it? Ready? Let's go. Not bad. That felt like a while, didn't it? Let's try 10 seconds. This is going to feel like eternity in the middle of a sermon. Ready? 10 seconds. That felt like forever. (laughs) In homiletics and communication classes, we are taught the thing called the power of the pause. And a preacher or an orator will use this as a communication skill to grab the attention of the listening audience. Sometimes we lose focus in the middle of a message or a sermon or a lecture. And sometimes when you just pause and count to three, you can grab the attention of the listening ear again. And so I believe what's taking place here is God is, of course, the greatest communicator and the greatest orator in the universe, because He created the world. He actually spoke the world into existence. And so I believe He is the greatest communicator and speaker and preacher in all of the universe. And so here he is using the great tactic of using the power of the Paul's to emphasize how serious and severe. His judgment that is following this time of silence. When heaven is silent, God is speaking. And here we see all of heaven hushes for about 30 minutes. That's about the time period it takes you to watch one television show on TV or Netflix or whatever you're watching these days. So for 30 whole minutes, approximately, heaven ceases its worship, ceases all the chants, ceases all the the speaking and and the worshiping and the singing and the praising and everything, and it is silent for 30 minutes. And in the middle of the solitude, John says these words in verse number two, and I saw seven angels which stood before God. Now, it's interesting here. Jewish tradition is going to tell us who these seven angels are, but we have to ask ourselves, who are these seven angels? It's a fair question. So Jewish tradition tells us that these are the seven archangels. Now, Scripture mentions two of them. You know who they are? Gabriel and Michael. The Old Testament and New Testament mention two of these archangels by name. And so scripturally, if we're just looking at Genesis to Revelation, we know that there's two archangels mentioned in the canon of God's word. But Jewish tradition adds five more. Raphael, Uriel, Ragiel, Sariel, and Remiel. Jewish tradition tells us there are seven archangels, and most commentators that I've read come and associate these seven angels as the seven archangels in Jewish tradition. Now, whether that's the case or not, I'll tell you, when we step into glory, we'll finally see for ourselves. But we see that these seven angels are special angels that are given trumpets, and they're going to blow these trumpets, and at the sound of these trumpets, judgment Will follow. Now I want you to understand this that when seal seven is broken, it contains all seven trumpets and all seven bowls. And at the seventh trumpet, we see that seven bowls are unleashed or vials, as the King James says. And here the Bible says that, that to these seven angels, seven trumpets were given. I find it interesting that how trumpets were used throughout scripture. I think it is important that when we see an instrument like a trumpet, I'm not saying to go look at every single verse the word trumpet is mentioned, but just pause and reflect in your mind, where do you remember a trumpet mentioned, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament? Trumpets are often the most significant musical instrument throughout Scripture, being associated with many different events. In the Old Testament, we see that they are used to summon the congregation of Israel. They are used to sound the alarm in a time of war. In fact, my favorite instance of a trumpet used in war is back in the days of Joshua. And they're marching around the walls of Jericho. And you remember what happened on the seventh day? They blew the sound of the trumpet. And at the sound of the trumpet, the walls came tumbling down. It's also used at religious feasts in the Old Testament. It was used to announce public news in the Old Testament. And used to acclaim new kings and worship the Lord. Zephaniah associates the trumpets with the final day of the Lord when God brings his final judgment to this world and establishes his kingdom. And we see now is the beginning of that scene here take place in the book of Revelation. Now the New Testament mentions these trumpets in another fashion. We see a mention in these trumpets in in, in 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. And it's to announce... The rapture of the church. The Bible says, At the sound of the trump of God, the dead in Christ will rise, and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And this chapter, in its immediate context, is using the sound of these trumpets to remind us that God is a God who brings judgment to this world. Each of these seven trumpets unleashes a specific judgment of greater intensity than the first six seals, one commentator said. He goes on to say, but not as destructive as the seven bowls. The first four trumpets destroy the earth's ecology, the next two produce demonic destruction of humanity, and the seventh trumpet introduces the final outpouring of God's wrath contained in the seven bowl judgments. Now, some commentators and some theologians are going to associate the seven seals with actually being the seven trumpets and actually being the seven bowls, So they're all synonymous. But I would view them as seven sequential judgments that God unleashes. And six seals are open in chapter six. And then the seventh seal unleashes the seven trumpets. And at the seventh trumpet is unleashed, the seven bowls. I would view them as seven sequential events. And I'll share with you. Why is the day's approach? But today, I think it is interesting that as we're coming into these first five verses, we're not going to dive into the detail of these seven trumpets or these four trumpets mentioned in chapter 8, but I want to give you a survey of the seven seals and the seven trumpets so we can get our minds around what's taking place in chapter 8 and then leading into chapter 9. Understand this, that seal number one is a seal of peace. Peace is brought to this world in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. War is brought through the second seal in chapter 6. Famine follows the time of war in the third seal. Death follows that in the fourth seal. The martyrs cry for vengeance and um, those who persecuted them in a tribulation period is the seal of number five. Seal number six is the cosmic devastation. Bring about the earthquake that rumbles on this world. Bringing sun, turning the sun into darkness. Bringing the moon to blood and taking the mountains and flattening them and the islands that they are seen no more. And then here in chapter eight, the seven trumpets are blown. Trumpet number one is the sound of hail, fire, and blood that pours down on the earth to wipe out one-third of all plant life. Trumpet number two, burns a burning, excuse me, a burning mountain falls into the sea and turns one-third of the ocean to blood, and one-third of all sea life dies. Trumpet number three, a star called wormwood poisons one-third of all freshwater supply. Trumpet number four, one-third of the moon, one-third of the stars, and one-third of the sun darkens. Trumpet number five, demon locusts with human faces, long hair, and lion's teeth, and the power of a scorpion sting, plague and sting nonbelievers for five months, and all those who are stung by these demonic locusts will cry and wish for death. Trumpet six, four fallen angels are released and wipe out people, From sulfur and fire pouring out of their mouths, they managed to wipe out one-third of mankind. And then, Trumpet 7 is not blown until chapter 11. But this is a signification that the end has finally come. Another break from the plagues we will see. Leading us into the seven bowl judgments. 24 elders in heaven declare it's time to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple in heaven opens, featuring the ark of the covenant. Now, wherever you fi- uh, find your place in the timeline of these events, whether you think that seal 4 or seal 5 or seal 6 is the transitional period from three and the first three and a half years to the second three and a half years of the tribulation period, understand this, that when this seventh seal is broken and these trumpets begin to sound, we are now into the second half of the seven years of the tribulation period. And we see here in these two verses That when heaven is silent, God is speaking. But now I want to transition and ask the second question. Not just how do we see God at work in heaven in this scene. But now I want to share with you this. I want to ask this question. How do we see God at work in our life as a child of God and believer today? So how do we see God? How do believers see God at work in their lives? I believe verses 3 and 4 answer that question. Not just about the future but also about present day, about right here and right now. Let's read verses three and four. The Bible says in verse three, and another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the altar, which was before the throne. And then verse four, and the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. As I read these two verses, I think about this thought. When believers pray, God is responding. When believers pray, God is responding. Today we see in this chapter the fact and the biblical truth throughout all scripture that God hears, God listens, and God answers and responds to prayer. We can go to the throne of grace with great boldness, as the writer of Hebrews said, because God is there present to help us in our time of need. God is there to respond to our prayers, and we see God is responding to the prayers that were prayed From the martyrs making their petition in heaven. Understand this, that a prayer is just simply a petition. And so right now, on this side, in the temporal world, on this side of eternity, we are making our prayers a petition to God. But in Revelation chapter 6, we see that these, these martyred ones in the tribulation period are making a request or a petition to God about avenging their martyrdom to come in. And martyr them. And we see in verses 3, 4, and 5, God is finally answering that prayer, and we'll get to that later on. But I want to draw your attention to the first part of verse 3. It says, And another angel. So we've seen seven angels so far, and now an eighth angel is on the scene. And a lot of discussion is about who this eighth angel is. Some would associate this eighth angel as Jesus Christ. But understand this that from Matthew to Revelation, Correct me if I'm wrong. By all means, feel free to do so. I never recall an instance in Scripture, in the New Testament at least, where Jesus is referred to as an angel. Of course, from Genesis to Malachi, we see that oftentimes an angel of the Lord is a Christophany or a theophany or a bodily manifestation of Jesus Christ before he comes to be born of a virgin. But in the New Testament, we don't see that. In fact, in the book of Revelation, so far we've seen Jesus Christ predominantly identified as the Lamb. And so here in this scene, if this was Jesus Christ, this angel who comes, I think that it's reasonable to believe that John would have said specifically that this was Jesus Christ. So far in chapter 1, Jesus is identified as the faithful witness. He's identified as the firstborn of the dead. He's identified as the prince of the kings of the earth. He's identified as the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the ending, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who ever will be. He is identified as the Son of Man, as the first and the last. In chapter 1, he's also identified as the living one, the one who holds the keys of hell and of death. In chapter 2, he is the Son of God. In chapter 3, he is the one who is holy and the one who is true. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness in the beginning of the creation of God. In chapter 5, he is the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David. In chapter 6 and 7 and 8, he is the Lamb of God who is able and worthy to open up the seals. In chapter 19, he is, the, he is faithful and true. In chapter 19, he is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. I like what one commentator said. He said this. If Jesus were the one identified at the altar as the angel, it is reasonable to assume that he would be identified as so. And I agree with that. We see this is just another angel. In fact, we see throughout the Bible, God created angelic beings to accomplish his divine sovereign will, not just in heaven, but on this earth. And so the Bible says, and another angel came and stood at the altar. Now in heaven here, we see a golden, or we see an altar, excuse me, mentioned. Golden altar, in fact, in verse three goes on. One altar is mentioned. There's so much here that John, I believe, is seeing in heaven that reminds him of the Old Testament temple and the Old Testament tabernacle. In fact, I would just go as far to say that the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament temple is a reminder to the Old Testament saints of what heaven is kind of gonna look like and what the worship scene is kind of gonna look like. And so we see in the Old Testament time period, they had two main altars that they used. They had an altar outside Of the place called a temple or tabernacle. And that was a spot where they would take the animal. They would tie the animal on the altar. And they would slay the animal and offer it as a sacrifice. And then there's another altar inside called the altar of incense. And there they would take these fragrances. And they would allow it to go up. So that God could smell it in his nostrils. But in this scene here we're seeing that this angel takes a golden censer. The only way I can describe it in our modern eyes. Is kind of like a nice fancy glorified shovel. And so what they would do in the Old Testament, they would go to the, the altar outside, they would take the coals that were burning on the altar, they would take this censer or this glorified shovel, scoop up some of these coals and bring it inside and place it on the, old, on the other altar of incense. And we see this scene is similar to what John and some of these Jewish believers would have recognized throughout the Torah and the Old Testament. And it goes on to say, that there was given to him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the altar which was before the throne. Remember in chapter 5, verse 8, it speaks about the golden vials full of odors, these bowls full of smells and, and odors, and it says, These are the prayers of saints. These are the petitions of the saints. And here most likely in the immediate context, we know that God responds to our prayers. But here in this context, we see that God is responding to the prayers and petitions of these believers in the tribulational period. I mean, just imagine, they're going through all the persecution. They're going through all the tribulation. They're going through all the temptation, all the trials and and the agony and the pain. And here they're reading this for the first time perhaps in the Asian minor culture, and you're thinking that God is able to answer their prayers and to to hear them then, and then these saints in the tribulation period, they're going to receive all this similar stuff, and they're going to be reminded that God answers prayer. As I look out here at this auditorium, I, I see a testimony of how God has answered prayer in your life and in my life, and that we can believe with great assurance that God responds to your prayers and my prayers today. Notice it goes on to say, that this altar, these prayers, come up before the throne of God. And then verse number four. It's very interesting here. This word for censer can often be used as a term to, for frankincense. I don't know if you've ever seen frankincense used like in a sensual oil bottle. But you can take it and place it in a diffuser. And then as the diffuser sends out this odor and, and the fumes and the, and, and the stuff comes out. There we see that it smells and brings a fragrance to that room. And here in this scene, that perhaps frankincense is the one being used here because it is used so many times in the Old Testament and is one of the most esteemed fragrances throughout Scripture. We see that Jesus receives frankincense as a gift in the Gospels. And here, most likely, perhaps even so, frankincense is being used here in this spot. And it is symbolizing that as this fragrance is coming up Out of the altar and to the throne of God. A reminder that God hears and answers and responds to the prayers of his people. And it came out of the angel's hand in verse number four. I want you to understand this. That no matter the issue in your life, you can take it to God in prayer. No matter the request, no matter how silly or how small you might think it is, or how large or how ginormous that request may be, God can answer any size of prayers that you pray. And today I'm thankful for that. That as we think about this future event, that we can be encouraged that God answers prayer throughout all history and even in the future. How do believers see God at work in their lives? Well, when believers pray, God is responding. How do we see God at work in heaven? When heaven is silent, God is speaking. I'm reminded of that verse in the Psalms where it says, Be still and know that I am God. Sometimes I think it is important that we turn the radio off in our car and we turn everything off in our lives. We turn the phone off, we turn all this stuff off and we just sit in silence and allow the word of God to speak to us. The greatest way and the main way God speaks to you and me today is through his word, the canon of scripture. And so understand this, that if you as a child of God are not spending time in the word of God, then almighty God is not gonna speak to you as a child of God. So get into God's word today and hear the silent God speak through his mighty word. But now I want to ask this question as we look at the fir- fifth and final verse of our text today How does the world see God at work on this earth? You ever think about that? How do non believers witness God on his throne and stage move? Let's read verse five. It says, And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake as i read verse 5 here's the answer to the question of how the world sees God at how the world sees God at work in this world when the world refuses to repent god is judging when the world refuses to repent god is judging We've read verse 5, but now let's go back to chapter 6, and let let us read verses 9 and 10. Let's read verses 9 and 10. Not going to spend too much detail here, but I believe that these are martyred believers in the tribulation. So these are martyred tribulation saints who are there now in heaven petitioning to God to avenge their blood and bring judgment to those who cause them pain verse 9 it says, and when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? This gives a similar idea. This this petition is very similar to the imprecatory Psalms in the Old Testament. Psalms where, where these believers in the Old Testament were praying to God because they were being persecuted in such a severe way they were Asking God to judge those who are persecuting them. In fact, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 94 and verse number 1. We see the psalmist is is doing just this. In Psalm 94, verse number 1, listen to the words of the psalmist when he's speaking about how vengeance belongs to our God. He says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, To whom vengeance belongs, show thyself. Now turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And we see New Testament revelation that not just in the book of Revelation, but here in Romans chapter 12, after Paul is writing his doctrinal dissertation from chapters 1 to 11, now he transitions to the practical aspect of the Christian life and how we can apply the truth of doctrine to our lives and practice. And in verse number 19 of Romans 12, he says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, referencing back into the Old Testament, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And so in similar fashion that these Old Testament saints were praying for vengeance upon their persecutors, we see these martyred saints in heaven are asking God to avenge their blood from those who persecuted them on the earth in the tribulational period. I love what one commentator said about this chapter. He said, the main point of Revelation chapter 8 is God answers the prayers of his people by hallowing his name and judging the world. Verse number 5 of Revelation 8, it says this angel, the same one most likely from verse number 3, takes the censer. So imagine in your minds this glorified, fancy shovel. He goes to this altar that is gold, and he picks up the coals with that shovel, and the Bible says he casts it. Now, that word cast, it gives the same idea that you would take a baseball or a football and you would throw it as hard as you can and as far as you can. And this angel takes that sensor, the shovel, with the coals, and he casts the coals as hard as he can and as far as he can to this earth. And the voices and the thunderings and the lightnings and the earthquake hit this earth. Why? Would God do this? Why would God make this angel in his sovereign will take voices of coal, thunderings of coal, and lightnings of coal, and an earthquake of coal, and throw it down to this earth? Remember earlier there was another earthquake in chapter 6 in the sixth seal. It shook the earth in such a way they ran to the mountains to find safety, and they prayed to the rocks. And now we see that God is answering the prayers and petitions of his saints here by bringing judgment to this world. Why would God bring judgment to this world? Well, let me just refresh your memory from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Scripture. We see that mankind in its entirety has rejected God's word. In fact, in Genesis, we see that God created man, placed him in a garden, and said, you could do whatever you want to in this garden, just don't eat of that one tree. And they eat of that one tree. And then they are in a fallen estate, and now they have in, we have inherited sin based upon their decision, and now we are all sinners. The Bible says that. And then God would later send the prophets. He would send his messengers, and he would send his word. He would actually r- get these prophets and these men of God to write down his word in the Old Testament, and they would, they would copy them and preserve it so we could have it today. And then that didn't work, and Israel and, and the people of God would reject the messengers and his word. And so God said, all right, I'm going to come and tabernacle and live among these people. And in John chapter 1, we see that the people that, that were his own kindred did not receive him as Lord. They rejected him. And so Jesus came. Why did he come? He came to take the wrath of God the Father upon himself on the cross. And that's why Jesus came. So why would God judge this world? God will judge this world because of their utter refusal to repent of their sins and to cry out to him as Lord and Savior. My friend, God deserves. To sh- God has long deserved to shadow this world with coals of fire and judgment. In fact, I deserve the fires of hell. I deserve eternal separation from God in a devil's hell and the lake of fire. My sin is gross and wretched in the sight of God, but God in his infinite love and mercy paid the sins for this world, and there I can receive him as Savior. And so can you. I like what John 3 says. John 3, in verse 36, Jesus is accredited to saying, He that believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. My friend, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your savior, God's wrath already abides on you. But if you know Christ as your savior, God's grace abides on you. I don't know about you today, but I want God's grace and love and mercy rather than his wrath and judgment and fury. We see in chapter eight, it's the beginning of, of ultimate reprobation. I know I've said that multiple times so far, but it's the idea that man, just like Pharaoh back in the book of Exodus, totally refused and hardened his heart towards God in such a way that God said, All right, here's my judgment. The world is going to see the day when God's long suffering and patience will time out and they will receive his judgment. Thankfully, chapter 7 tells us that God will appoint and seal 144,000 Jews to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And we see in chapter 7, verse 9, that a great multitude, probably the greatest awakening and largest revival that this world is ever going to see, is going to transpire in the seven years of tribulation. And we're going to see a host of Jewish people and even Gentiles come to faith. But many will not respond to the gospel. They will not respond to these evangelists in chapter 7. They will not respond to the two witnesses who will do miracles and even rise from the dead. And they will not respond to the angelic being crying out the good news of the gospel. So why would God judge this world? Because this world refuses to repent of their sin and to bow to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. As we come to a close, I want to share with you that this, these five verses are pretty heavy. And as we get into the later part of this chapter, and really the rest of this book is going to be a very heavy book. I would actually say that that the first seven chapters are the easy chapters of Revelation. But eight and on are the hard chapters. Because it's, it's hard for my mind to grasp the craziness that's going to be in this world in the future. But as we think about prayer today, that's the main focus of these five verses. How can we be praying today? I think there's two ways that we can pray. The first one is pray that God will demonstrate his grace and love to this world by redeeming the lost. That's why Jesus came. But secondly, pray that God will bring judgment to all those who have hardened their hearts toward the gospel and refuse to repent of their sins. When the world refuses to repent, God is judging. When believers pray, God is responding. And when heaven is silent, God is speaking. My friends, God is at work in the moment of silence. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you, and have a great week.